0: This evening's reading is from Philippians chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure This is God's word.
1: Let me add my welcome. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar. And it's my privilege to take us through this fabulous, fabulous book of Philippians at the moment. Let's pray for God's help and then let's work through it together. Lord God, whether we are very, very familiar with uh, the Bible or this is very fresh and new to us, we pray that you would give us uh, sharp minds to understand what is written. We pray even more than that, though, that you would give us hearts that love and can recognize truth. Give us, too, the courage to do what your word says, for our good, but mostly for your glory. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Were you missold sold PPI? I want to talk to you about PPI. Were you mis-sold PPI when you took out a credit card, loan, or a mortgage? Ha-ha, mortgage these days. But uh, banks have set aside billions of pounds to compensate people like you. You could be in line for a substantial payout minus my exorbitant lawyer's fees. Now, uh, I'm afraid you've missed the deadline for that kind of PPI. Sorry. I want to talk to you about a different PPI, not payment protection insurance, but a PPI which I'm guessing actually all of us are currently enduring, which is post-pandemic inertia post-pandemic inertia, PPI. Now, um, I'm, by the way, I am copywriting that phrase. The, now, lots of commentators are observing that you know, lockdown is over, you can now do anything you want, but we're not exactly bursting with enthusiasm to get out and, and take the world by storm again. We're, well, the, the articles use different words. We're, we're languishing. A big article in the New York Times about languishing. We're we're suffering from uh, lassitude, listlessness, acedia, the old medieval term. Whatever you call it, lots of us are feeling it. You know, we sit there thinking, well, I, I could go out clubbing. I mean, obviously not me, but you, know, you, <laughs> those of you <laughs> the other side of 30, uh, could, uh, could still go clubbing. Um, you, I could go to a gig tonight. I, I could go to that new restaurant that's opened up and with friends. <sighs> Yeah, let's just order in and Uber Eats and uh, 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 and just watch Netflix repeats again. It just all feels too much effort, <laughs> and it's affecting us spiritually too. So, uh, yeah, midweek group. Uh, yeah, I can't just log on in my pajamas anymore, can I? Uh, I've actually got to leave the house, and it's it's now getting a bit dark and cold on a Sunday evening to, to go out to church and oh, the thought of another getting up early on Sunday to serve at Sunday school with children who scream and, uh, or, or to, to go out another evening to read the Bible with a student oh. well we might just about do it but you know, there's not a lot of enthusiasm and excitement and get up and go about us is there? Now, the Apostle Paul did not write the letter of Philippians to cure us of our inertia, to give us back our zest for life. But he did write the section that we're looking at tonight, chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, to motivate us to the spiritual hard work of serving God. And so I think this is a very timely word we're looking at tonight in Philippians 2. It's a very timely word for us as a church. And we'll see that there are, there are three motivations in the passage to, to work hard to serve God. Um, actually, one of them has dropped off the sheet. Work hard because God is at work in you. Secondly, um, work hard not grumbling because you're God's light in the world. And thirdly, as you do this, you make my sacrifice a joy. Let's work through it together. If you keep the Bible open, we're in Philippians 2 and we're going to dive in. We looked at verses 1 to 11 last week. We're going to dive in at verse 12. Therefore, in the light of what I've just said, in other words, what should we do in response to the greatest story ever told? That's what he's just told us in verses 1 to 11. The true story of how the Son of God came down from heavenly glory, clothed himself in the humiliation and the frailty of a human nature, poured himself out to a degrading death on the cross, and then was raised to the highest heights as the Lord of all creation. What are we supposed to do in response to that message? Well, actually, we're to do exactly the same as as what he told us at the the beginning of the chapter, which was to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, verse 5 of chapter 2. Here in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more so in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you look back at uh, chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Verse 12, we respond by obeying as he obeyed. Now, an important distinction at this point, or we're going to really misunderstand what happens next, Up till now, in chapter 2, the focus has been on Jesus' attitude as he went to die on the cross. His attitude was to count his own needs as nothing and to pour himself out for people like you and me. That was his attitude and it's an example for you and me to follow. We follow his attitude. But as Paul uses the word salvation here in verse 12, he's looking not at Jesus' attitude but his achievement, his unique achievement on the cross. On the cross, he achieved salvation for any who trusts in him. Salvation from our sins and from eternal death. And he won for us the right to be children of God. Now that's not something we can sort of follow as a path or, or contribute to or, or do for anybody else. That's something unique he does. We just enjoy it. We just cash the check. That's our role. We don't do anything to be saved. We just trust in what he has done, which is everything. What we are to do, though, verse 12, is to work out your salvation. Now, he doesn't mean uh, like algebra. You've got, to, you've got to intellectually understand this. It's, it's as simple as, it, you know, a four-year-old can understand it. Jesus died to pay for what I did wrong, and now I'm forgiven. And I'm a son of God. That's pretty simple. Now, work out means put into Practice. Which is to say, Jesus doesn't just save you from something. He saves you for something. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus doesn't just save you from God's judgment for sin. He also saves you for a life of freedom and joy and purpose. God has got something better for you if you're a Christian. Something better than uh, Jesus dying on the cross to save you from the consequences of your sin. So now you're guaranteed eternal life, but he just leaves you to wallow around in the muck of your sin. Just carrying on in foolishness and filth until you go to heaven. Now he's got something much, much better for you than that. He wants you now to work out that salvation and now to live in the freedom and the joy and the purpose that comes from serving him in all of life. It's a life that matters that he's calling to you to. He's calling to you a life that is satisfying and joy-filled and makes a difference, and a life that ultimately fulfills your purpose as a human being. That's what God has for you and nothing less. I mean, imagine for a moment you live in Afghanistan. Not a particularly pleasant thought right now, to be honest, but uh, imagine you're, you're, you're an Afghan and... It's 10 years from now and the Afghan people, you've risen up and overthrown the Taliban. And after 10 years of unimaginable misery, the slavery is broken. But there is just a huge amount of wreckage in the country. And so you're asked to, to take in um, uh, a slave, a little slave girl, 10 years old. All she's known was being slave to a Taliban commander. Never eaten a meal at a table, just scraps on the floor never slept in a bed, just chained in an animal shed, never been to school, beaten if even looked at a book. And you free this little girl and welcome her into your house. And you explain, you're free. You're our child now, forever. This is your family. And I go, this is wonderful. I'm free. I'm free. That is amazing. But... Can I still sleep in your cattle shed with chains around? And can I, can I eat the scraps from the table rather than a meal on a plate? Well, you're free. You can do what you like. Why would you want to do that? You don't need it anymore. And as a Christian, God has set you free, free from the eternal death we face, free from the power of sin. And he has something much better for you than carrying on living living wallowing in the sins that we've been forgiven. You've been set free. And so we're called to work out our salvation into every area of life. And we do that as well as you meet uh, with your midweek small group, your Bible study group, and you work out what does it mean to obey God in a tricky situation at work rather than just do what's easy. What, is it, what does it mean to, to try and be brave and tell people in my hall that I'm a Christian when I meet them for the first time as a student? How, how can I not be shaped by the world's sexual ethics, but stay true to the Bible? How, how can I make plans for the future, not just based on worldly career progression, uh, ever bigger houses and nicer, more rural neighbourhoods, but, but on, on how I can serve the gospel? We're to work out salvation to every area of life. But, but at this point, it is very easy to make a mistake that Christians have been making basically every single day since Jesus ascended into heaven all those years ago. And that is to think, okay, Jesus did his bit by dying on the cross and now it's up to me to work hard. He's done his work and now I do mine. That's what goes on. To make sure I'm saved, I've got to do a whole lot of stuff, yeah? Well, Actually, if we've read verse 12 carefully, we would realise that just can't be the case. It says, work out your salvation, not work up to it, but work it out. It's been given to you, now work it out into all of life. Salvation is a complete package achieved by Jesus. And actually, the rest of the verses help us see that. Come back to verse 12. Uh, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So we work out our salvation. We work out what does it mean to live the rich, full, fruitful life that God wants for each one of us here. And as we do so, we do it with awe and trembling. Why? Well, because we're not using our own strength, but we're aware that Almighty God is at work in us, not just around us, in other people, in our church, but in you. Almighty God is at work. No wonder you should tremble. It's a mind-boggling truth. He's not just told you what to do. He's empowering you to do it. Now, it's a bit like this. Well, actually, that's the problem. I mean, it's just not like anything else. Uh, The almighty sovereign creator God working through responsible, rational creatures he's created, it's not like anything else. And so that's one of the reasons we struggle to get our heads around this. And, And there is so often confusion in Christians about it. But the particular point that Paul is making in this passage, there's lots of places he talks about it, but the particular point he's making here means you could say that in a sense, the Christian life is more like sailing than rowing. Now, I happen to know quite a bit about both sailing and rowing because I watch the Olympics once every four years. And, and that's enough. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Uh, I mean, I remember realising this. We just do. We suddenly become experts. I remember uh, before an evening service here a number of years ago, watching the Winter Olympics with a bunch of guys. And we were, we were complaining about the tactics being employed by the GB women's curling team. A sport none of us had ever even watched before. But 30 seconds in, we're like, no, that's terrible. you like, oh, no, 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 that's the wrong, what's it called, thing to knock. No. Yeah. But, you do, I mean, you like that. We, we become experts. We all know all about rowing now, don't we? Oh, they got rid of Jürgen Grobler too early. That's why we didn't win the medals. We all know everything. But even an armchair Olympic expert can spot that there is a fundamental difference between sailing and rowing, which is that in rowing, the power is provided by the people in the boat, which is why none of them are built like me, because they've got to provide power. Whereas in sailing, all the power comes from the wind. And so when you're sailing, you work hard to harness the wind, but the wind provides all the power. The wind isn't blowing, you're not going. That's the thing with sailing. God provides all the power in the Christian life. He doesn't just do the kind of thing back then when Jesus died and was risen. God provides all the power now that's at work in your life. God's wind is relentlessly blowing you towards holiness and self-sacrifice. And his call to you is work it out. Work it out. Harness that power and go in the direction that he's blowing. So just to make it clear, it is not the case I serve God and he rewards me with eternal life if I'm good enough. It's not the case that uh, God did his part with Jesus dying on the cross and now it's up to me to do my part if I'm to be saved. Jesus plus me equals saved. And it's not the case that, well, I just let go and let God, that I don't need to do anything. Instead, three things. One... Salvation is all a free gift from God, verse 12. He's done everything necessary for salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Two, we are called to work out, that is, live out that salvation in every area of life. And three, we live out that salvation in confidence that God is at work to achieve that very purpose. Salvation is all of God. We work it out confident that God is at work in us. That's what's going on. Now, there is one more thing I must say before we move on, which is that I think in the past I've, I've made the mistake of just completely ignoring the context of these verses, treating them as a, a sort of hermetically sealed answer that Paul gives to, as if someone has, stop what you're writing in Philippians and just tell me quickly the answer to this question, who does what in salvation? And Paul said, okay, I'll forget everything I've been writing. Let me just answer this. He doesn't. This is part of the argument of Philippians. And the word therefore in verse 12 links us back to the amazing description of Jesus being raised to reign after his humiliation. And that's meant to be in our minds as we hear the call to work out our salvation. Jesus is the pattern going through service and humiliation to glory. So here's the point. Why shake yourself out of the... Uh, the sofa surfing that we are, (laughs) The, the gravitational pull of the sofa. Why get up and get on with serving God? It's hard work fighting sin. I'm not sure if you've worked that out yet, but it is hard work. It's hard work making time to love and serve others and teach them about Jesus. But it is worth it for two reasons. One, because God is at work in you as you do it. And two, Because he is at work taking you on the same journey that Jesus went. Of serving others, pouring yourself out so that one day you'll join Jesus Christ. And God's mighty power is at work to bring you there. That's his purpose in your life. Not just that you serve, but that you end up in unimaginable, mind-boggling pleasure and glory with Jesus forever. Don't grumble. Uh, Sorry, work hard because God is at work in you. Secondly, don't grumble because you are God's light in the world. Now, verse 14 doesn't uh, introduce a brand new section. Paul is still telling us why we should work out our salvation, why we should get up and get on with serving God. But he's got a very specific application for the Philippians. And I know it's one I need to hear. I wonder whether that's true for more of us. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. No grumbling against God, no arguing with each other. What happens if you do that? It's amazing. You shine like a bright star in a dark world and God looks at you as blameless and pure. Verse 15, blameless and pure. Now, blameless doesn't mean sinless. In the New Testament, it's one of the qualifications for Christian leaders in Titus 1, 6-7, and none of us are sinless. It means there's an integrity to your life, a public integrity. It's not a, wow, they are a Christian. It's not that you don't need Jesus to pay for your sins. It's that you trust he has paid for your sins, and so you're seeking to work that out into all of life. Now, I hope it's obvious that he's not saying the only thing you need to do to be blameless in God's eyes is not to grumble. As if God's saying, you're stealing from work, you're getting drunk and fighting, you're abusing the poor and the vulnerable, you're having sex with people you're not married to, but you know what? You're not grumbling, so in my eyes you're blameless and pure. <laughs> that, clearly not. The point, though, is that grumbling really matters. It matters so much that Paul can write to a church where they are enduring serious suffering, people being beaten and thrown into prison, and standing firm and clinging to Jesus Christ and continuing to tell others the good news. They're giving sacrificially to see the gospel taken out by missionaries around the known world. And he can write to a church like that look, you need to stop grumbling if you want to be blameless. It really matters. It is an ugly sin. Uh, Paul quotes, you see that little bit in quotes in verse 15? That's from uh, Moses' song at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the Israelites, 40 years wandering in the desert. And Moses writes that about the wicked generation of Israelites who never made it to the promised land. And they were just defined by grumbling. And Paul says, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what the world is like. The unbelieving world that doesn't know God is like that. Grumbling against God, arguing with each other. The church shouldn't be like that, he says. Don't be like them. They all missed out on God's promised land. But the church, when it's different, when it doesn't grumble, we shine. Now, the word for translated stars can mean either stars or navigation lights. The point is, either, I think. When you live without grumbling or arguing, grumbling against God, arguing with each other, when we do that as a church, we shine out like stars in a dark sky. I was out of London for um, the the weekend this weekend, and we saw a starlit sky away from light pollution. And it was mind-bogglingly beautiful. I was silent without having a phone in my hand. I mean, it's quite incredible. It was just extraordinary. So beautiful. That's you when you don't grumble. Or like a navigation beacon, a light that shows people the way to the almighty, beautiful God. And whatever else we do, we won't shine a light drawing people to God if our lives are marked by grumbling. And that is because every time we grumble, we deny the truth of verse 13 that God is at work to will and to act for his good purpose to fulfill his good purpose. See, every time I grumble, I say, not just, life is miserable right now. I say more than that. When I grumble, I say, God is not good in what he's doing in my life. I say, I would do a better job than God if I was in charge of my life. I say, God's promised future in heaven it's probably not good enough to make up for what I'm sacrificing right now. Now, I'm not saying we should wear the, the fake Christian plastic smile and everything's wonderful and, yes, I'm living a great life and everybody knows behind the scenes it's not. It's okay to admit life is hard and painful. We must be real. But thankfulness and rejoicing... Are things we're going to have to fight for they are disciplines we need to practice and cultivate if they're to become part of our characters if we're going to be marked more by rejoicing than grumbling oh it's interesting in philippians 3 1 and 4 2 paul doesn't say i don't need to tell you to rejoice because it just comes naturally to us doesn't it he says no no, no. command imperative rejoice i'll say it again rejoice it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again do it It's interesting, Uh, even secular studies. I was looking at a study, um, a big Harvard study, sociological study, saying gratitude, it makes you healthier, makes you perform better at work. Yeah, great. Benefits for me. But beyond that, when our, our lives are marked by a gratitude that shows we believe that God is at work and he is good, we shine like a star on a dark night in a very dark world. You know, people around us, well, we too share in this in a way, they're feeling insecure and uncertain about what's going on in the world. Many have lost uh, that sense of control that we love in the West about our life and the future. And what a light we could shine for God in this moment if rejoicing and thankfulness were just part of our daily speech. So our lives proclaimed. There is a God who is in control and he's not just in control up there but he is at work in my life to strengthen me to serve and to bring me safely to eternal glory imagine if your life declared that so why not try this as a daily discipline this week before you reach for your phone in the morning say these three things I'm going to put them up on the screen I think they're on your sheets as well Firstly, when you wake up, say, I rejoice because in the past, Jesus poured out his life to save me. Secondly, I rejoice because in the future, I will be raised with him to glory and delight. And thirdly, I rejoice because in the present, God is working out his good purposes in me and for me. So today I'm not going to grumble. Try saying that as your first prayer when you wake up for a week. Finally, uh, as you do this, you make my sacrifice a joy. Finally, verses uh, 17 to 18, Paul tells us, look, when you do this, when you seek to live your Christian life like this, when you seek to serve God wholeheartedly and, and not to grumble against him, well, it makes all of Paul's sacrifices worthwhile. Then I will be able, then you'll shine like stars in the universe as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ. I didn't run or labor in vain, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now he pictures his life as a drink offering. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, a libation or drink offering would often be poured on top of another sacrifice. Now to understand this, you've got to forget the idea that we have that every single sacrifice was to pay for sin. They're not. A lot of the sacrifices were joyful offerings of thanksgiving and praise to God. And he's saying, look, The way that the Christians he's writing to in Philippi, he's saying, look, the way you as a church are serving, it's like you're living your lives as a a sacrificial offering to God, joyfully laying down your money, your time, your physical safety, your comfort, your reputations, offering it all to serve God. And he's saying, all my hard work, praying for you, teaching you, trying to help you, it's like the drink offering being poured on top. It's a graphic image, though, of his hard work for them. He's pouring himself out. We read earlier in the chapter, Jesus emptied himself by becoming a human to serve us. And Paul says, I pour myself out for you. And the big point comes in verse 17, I think. I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, he's saying, I rejoice. Because my hard work has helped you guys keep going. You're holding fast to the truth of Jesus and you're heading for eternal glory. And So I rejoice. Now some of you um, have the great, great blessing of having parents who taught you about Jesus ever since your childhood. And every now and then I meet parents when they come to visit Christchurch Mayfair. And I just love seeing (coughs) the joy on their faces as we talk. I also love seeing the nervousness on your faces as I talk to your parents and what are they saying? Who is saying what? Um, But don't worry, um, because usually they are just so excited to see that you are living as a Christian, as an adult. They're just thrilled. And it means all those sleepless nights, changing nappies and dealing with toddler tantrums and, and all the angst-ridden years dealing with teenage conflict. Oh, they're just worthwhile. So I was talking to a, a youth leader who's here tonight, just before the service. I was asking, he's come with them, somebody who'd been in his youth group is here, saying, how do you feel about all those you know, Friday nights you gave up and the hard work after you finished your day job serving the youth work? He said, What he said was really striking. He said, all praise be to God, but what a pleasure for me. Do you see the lovely implication of this? You want more joy in your life? Then get involved in serving the gospel. Invest in telling others about Jesus, inviting them to church. Be intentional with, with people who already follow Jesus. Use the opportunities we've got after church and conversations to encourage one another, to build one another up, to help one another work out how to live for Christ in every area of life. Serve. Serve in Sunday school, teaching the children. In, serve wherever there's a need. And at times, as you do so, you will feel like you're being poured out because it is hard work. But you'll also know deep joy. Look, lockdown shrank our worlds. It just did. It allowed us and encouraged us to curve in on, on ourselves physically and mentally. Our world shrank. And many of us, where well, still, we're still languishing and listless, and it's tempting just to, to settle into small, insular lives. Spiritually, as, as well as physically, we can just sink into the sofa. Philippians 2, God says, get going again. Time to wake up and get going again, people. Work out your salvation, serve others. Your certain future is eternal glory with Jesus. And right now, God's power is at work in you to enable you to be of use, to live a life that matters, to serve others. And it's interesting, he calls us to to look everywhere other than inwards in this passage. He calls us to look back. He begins in verse 12, saying, talking about our salvation. Look back and see Jesus on the cross. Your sins totally paid for us. He poured out everything he had to serve and save you. He calls us to look forward and see Jesus enthroned in glory, not just beckoning us to follow him, but by his mighty strength drawing us inexorably up towards him. Remind yourself daily of that certain hope. causes us to look up and see the Father, not distantly up there, but by his Spirit here with us and at work inside us. Make the conscious decision to connect with him each morning. causes us also to look out and see a world where people are in desperate need of Jesus, facing a Christless eternity. And wondering whether there really is a source of true hope. Get involved. Investing in relationships. Prayerfully finding the courage to speak the truth. To invite. And look around. Look around and here is a church family. And here is a source of joy. As you serve them and they serve you. This passage is God's call to action. There's no denying it. It's a call to turn away from PPI, post-pandemic inertia. And it's a call to each and every one of us. Well, if you've not yet put your trust in the Lord Jesus, do it. Do it tonight. And when you have, well, enjoy living the expansive, meaningful, rich, free, healthy, busy life that God calls you to. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you that your purpose for us is so rich. Thank you that you are uh, not just involved in the world when Jesus died and sometime in the future, but you're involved in our lives, even here, even now. Help us, we pray, to, to find in the gospel, in the certainty of our salvation and in the certainty of our heavenly delights, the energy we need to look out, to get up and to serve for your glory and for the good of others and also for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.